0: Listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. Join us every week as we break down one issue in global politics, so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now, but also what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Suda, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbara Gatt. I'm a journalist. Once a global superpower, there are suggestions now that the UK is in decline. And this week, we're discussing a pretty scathing article in The Globalist that describes the nation as the sick man of Europe without a cure. The author, Dennis McShane, definitely doesn't hold back in his assessment of the UK. What sort of issues is it facing right now?
1: Yeah, so the sick man of Europe, let me just say, is not a new phrase. It's the way that the Ottoman Empire was described just over a century ago. So in other words, the Ottoman Empire had lasted for many centuries, had been a center of international learning, and by the end of the 19th century was falling apart. Mm. And so bits of it were going for independence, etc. And so it was quite common amongst European powers to refer to the Ottoman Empire as the sick man of Europe. And then, of course, um, in World War I, it made the mistake of aligning with Germany and it then got defeated. The Ottoman Empire was broken up. And the modern-day country of Turkey emerged from the wreckage. But with all of the territories removed, some of them went to Britain, some went to um, uh, France, others became independents. So the Ottoman Empire collapsed during World War I. So that's the phrase, the sick man of Europe. So when Europeans hear that expression, it immediately, if they've got a good uh, grasp of history, immediately reminds them, of the old Ottoman Empire, which had been so significant at one Mm. point in European history and was just collapsing. And so what we're looking at here, this article was published for the third anniversary of Great Britain fully leaving the European Union. So remember, in 2016, the referendum took place. The British voted, just fell over the line, but voted nonetheless to leave the European Union and... Then it took ages to actually negotiate the exit. The background of this is that the um, previous Conservative, well, I was going to say previous Conservative government, we've had so many, an <laughs> <but> earlier Conservative <laughs> government um, had or the, the Conservatives always had problems with Europe, as did Labour. So this is actually the second referendum that the British had. The first referendum, which I voted in, was in the early 1970s, mm. And Britain had just entered the European Union, that was 1973. The Labour Party was in opposition. It was the Conservatives, ironically, who took Britain into what we now call the European Union. In those days, it was the common market. And then the Labour Party came to power and then held a referendum and the vote was to remain within the common market, the European Union. But there were obviously people in both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party who had great reservations. And as the decades have rolled on, Britain has been a rather awkward member of the European Union, but it was tolerated because the French, particularly in the Italians, saw it as a counterbalance to Germany. Otherwise, it's the Germans who are always going to be calling the shots when mm. it came to European politics. But by 2016, the British had voted to leave. I've got to say the referendum was done in a most disorganised way The then Prime Minister expected to win the referendum. The referendum was actually, the victory went to the other side in favour of pulling out with a very shoddy advertising campaign. Nobody really had thought through the consequences. That was a fit of of madness for the British, I think, to pull out. But it did, right? So the vote was to, to leave. Then there was this period about, you know, let's just get Brexit done, because the British had, had just got so sick of hearing about Brexit. I bet. So they were just desperate, just get us out. Yeah. We're just sick of it. It's dominating too much of our lives. And so three years ago, Britain had finally pulled out. One of the things that really is still hanging in the air, although it looks as though it's just now been settled, is the whole problem of Northern Ireland.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Remember, Brexit is an English vote. The Welsh, the Northern Ireland... And the Scottish all voted to remain. Yeah, right. It was the English mm. with their sheer numbers that pushed the issue over the line. Mm-hmm. And a lot of young people who didn't bother to vote. Now they're cursing themselves because their future is gone. In the old days, before Brexit, if you're a young person, you could work anywhere in Europe from Dublin across to Warsaw. It's amazing. That, that era has gone. Yeah. You know, even the ease of travel has gone. But it's too late. The youngsters didn't vote, and now they are paying the price for it. And it's going to take many, many years before that decision gets reversed. So people are saying, if only, you know, we could have a fresh election and try all over again. I just don't think there's an appetite for that. Mm. The British are just so sick of hearing about it. So the question really is, how do we make Brexit work? which is a bit late to start asking this question. Well, a little bit. <laughs> you should have been doing this, guys, before 2016. <laughs> and in this article, they're really just showing mm. that, that, in fact, the Brexit procedure really hadn't been thought through fully. The kicker for me is right at the end of the article where the author says, without the European Union to blame, British leaders will finally have to deal with the decline and homespun problems Britain faces and take appropriate remedial measures. In the past, you could always blame the Europeans in or Strasbourg or what, Brussels, whatever, mm. always those bureaucrats blocking you from doing something. Well, that's
0: now gone. Mm. You're on your own. Can you tell us what some of the issues are that are facing Britain at the moment? Like, what, what what's the big struggle? I think the
1: biggest struggle for me is the whole economic issue, mm. that the European Union is the world's largest trading block. So it's bigger than China, bigger than the United States. It's an excellent market, and it's right on Britain's doorstep. Can't get better than that. No. And so over the decades, people have just become accustomed to selling into Europe. Minimum amount of paperwork, just sales all the way through. Obviously, you end up with problems with smugglers and whatever, but anyway, paperwork was not there. It is now returning. And the Europeans love their paperworks. So So if you're an exporter in Britain, you have a real headache. So what we're seeing, therefore, is that a number of British companies are deciding to wind down their activities in Britain
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: open up factories on the continent. Okay. Because from there, you can then sell into those markets in Europe. Right. Because you, you are a European Union producer. Okay, you might have a British label somewhere, but you are a European Union producer and you are producing for your local market. Mm. For me, the real worry has been that Britain has got rid of its opportunity to trade so easily into the world's biggest trading bloc and has really not developed alternatives. And, of course, it's talking about developing this free trade deal with Australia. That's fine, but we're a market of 28 million people. You've just lost half a billion people. Yeah. We can't make up for what, what you've lost by removing your contacts with Brexit. So that, that for me, is the major issue. It is um, an economic issue. And on top of that, I do have to make a comment about the, the Northern Ireland situation because uh, poor old Northern Ireland people were thrown under a bus by Boris Johnson. So in 1973, Britain entered the European Union, common market, and the Republic of Ireland said, well, we've got no choice. We've got to go in as well because the economic ties between the the Republic of Ireland and Great Britain. However, with Brexit vote, the Irish said, we're not leaving. Yeah. We love being in the European Union. We're not leaving. So that then left this problem of where do you draw the line in Northern Ireland between Britain, which is out of the European Union, and the Republic of Ireland, which is in it. And according to one system, they would run it through the Irish Sea. Mm -hmm. Uh, In other words, in effect, hand Northern Ireland over to the Republic of Ireland. (laughs) Not particularly satisfactory if you're a member of the Conservative Unionist Party over there. And, of course, the fear was that if you, all right, let's redraw the boundary as to where it was before the two countries merged so easily back in 1973. But, in fact, there are more border crossings between Northern Ireland and the Republic than there are border crossings in Eastern Europe wow. between Russia and the West. Wow. So that would have been incredibly complicated and it would have made them, you know, targets for a revived IRA, which we now have, by the way. It's calling itself the new IRA. And they were recently shot a police officer in Northern Ireland. So the fear was that we would reopen all the issues because at the moment, or until recently, you could drive from Northern Ireland into the Republic of Ireland and not know that you've travelled across a border, the only inkling you would have had is that Britain is still in terms of miles per hour and the Irish have gone on to the European measurement of metres, kilometres and whatever. Sure. Uh, That would have been your only warning sign. Otherwise, uh, we've now had 50 years of people living on one side of the border working on the other side of the border. And then suddenly this issue has got revived. Mm. But People were not thinking through this issue in 2016. I think one of the reasons is the English are sick of Northern Ireland. (laughs) 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 They're sick of Brexit, but they're also sick of Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or they just look at Northern Ireland, it's full of all these bad people who are killing each other. So they really were not worried about the future of Northern Ireland, whereas I am. Mm. I don't want to have that fighting renewed. You know, the Good Friday deal that was done, was a really big breakthrough 25 years ago, great achievement, and one just wasn't to see that discarded, and we're back to having a rerun of the troubles. So the Northern Ireland situation, which perhaps has now been settled through a very complicated system of customs, I won't be able to explain it, mm. but by the looks of it, Rishi Sunak, the current Prime Minister, who's much more friendly towards the European officials than Boris Johnson was, Boris Johnson became very antagonistic towards European officials, whereas Rishi Sunak is much more diplomatic and he has been able to negotiate something which might solve that Northern Ireland problem. But remember, this was a problem which the British created by Brexit
0: Thanks for listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This week it's all about the United Kingdom and we're asking the question, is it in a permanent decline? Now, you did just mention uh, the new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. He's a very wealthy and privileged man. Is he the right one to lead England right now?
1: Well, I think he's he's certainly performed very well. He's very articulate. But as you say, he made a very smart decision about the woman he married. Mm -hmm. So suddenly he became one of the richest people in Great Britain. The article talks about uh, the fact that the death of the Queen has lifted the veil on some of the deeper rottenness at the heart of the British state. So Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, has just had to dismiss the Conservative Party chairman for telling lies about his tax returns. Boris Johnson is in trouble after it's revealed that the man he made chairman of the BBC, the most important media post in Britain, had helped Boris Johnson with a loan of eight hundred thousand pounds to the Prime Minister. These are seedy, sleazy examples of a political class which believes in its own entitlement and ignores all the old traditions, requiring ministers to be honest and accountable. So there is a debasement uh, of the quality of public life in Great Britain, which again adds this just this feeling of sleaze and and decay which is we saw we saw with the Ottoman Empire.
0: Yes, exactly. History's repeating. Britain's also been hit by a wave of strikes recently. Can you tell us who's protesting and why?
1: Yeah, so the article claims that the country is gripped by a strike wave not seen in Europe since the great general strikes in favour of the communist revolution in Russia 100 years ago. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) So they're setting records, but not ones that you want to have. No. And he says in mid-March, all schools in England will be closed due to teachers going on strike. The Great Railway Termini of London are barricaded up. Buses don't run. You've also got problems within the health system as people are going on strike. And he just says that, the current wave of strikes gripping the UK reflects the raw deal that is at the heart of Britain's still very class-based economic setup. Uh, there are notably not a reflection of union militancy or left-wing anti-conservative sentiment. These these are just desperate people. Mm. Don't forget, you know, the, the cost of living crisis we see in Australia is also reflected in Great Britain. And what we saw in Great Britain was the Creation of what are called heat centres. So, in other words, the energy in your home is so expensive, you can actually go to the village hall. Sounds like something out of World War II. Yeah. You can go to a village hall and the heating will be kept on. So you could sit in the village hall during the day and presumably into early evening. Mm. So as to save on the energy bill in your home.
0: Why is the energy so expensive there? Do we know? Like in... in well, a bit
1: like here. Yeah, now, Our right. energy has gone up as well. The, you know, the energy companies are doing very well out of the fears generated by the disruption to energy coming out of Russia.
0: Mm, yeah. And,
1: you know, and there are all sorts of other energy issues, which I, that might make a subject for a separate inquiry <laughs> as to, <laughs> to these podcasts as to why we're paying so much more. And on top of that, you've also got food shortages.
0: Mm.
1: Again, food, a lot of it comes in from Europe. The Netherlands, for example, is, I think, the second largest food exporter in the world, which is hard to imagine when you look at how small the Netherlands is. I know. Tiny. Very tiny, but it's (laughs) incredibly efficient at producing food, some of which would go into Britain. And, of course, that is now being disrupted because of Brexit.
0: Um, I wanted to touch on the monarchy. Now, this article says the royal family's not in the best shape at the moment either, kind of adding to the whole (laughs) everything's falling apart in the UK. I've got to say, though, as someone looking in when the Queen passed away, it really did seem like Britain loved its... I know they loved her, but it did feel like there was still plenty of support left for the monarchy in England, or do you think that was just because they loved the Queen, not the family itself?
1: I think the monarchy, yes, is very much a central part of, of how the British think. I serve on a a committee in London, I go to meetings via Zoom, and, you know, we were looking at our programme events for this year and the number of times people say, oh, we've got to avoid the coronation, we've got the lead-up to the coronation, we've got all the events after the coronation. You know, Clearly, the coronation is going to suck a lot of oxygen out of the atmosphere. So, yes, I think that people in Great Britain certainly have an interest in the royal family, In the article, he says the king has no authority. Well, neither did the queen, really. Mm. Uh, Prince Charles is 75 years old this year and looks every day of his many years. (laughs) 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 Um, He insists on having a coronation in May, Mm -hmm. the only royal family or monarchy in Europe that still bothers with a full-blown medieval pomp and grandeur. But that's because people expect it and, of course, the tourists are going to love it. Yeah. And I'm sure your media colleagues are all angling to get their job in, in London to of cover course. it. So that'll, there'll be an influx of money because of the coronation. Mm. But you're right. It is, you know, is that really celebrating what Britain wants to be in terms of looking to the future?
0: Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question, was how are everyday Britons feeling about the state of their country? And then you look at the monarchy with all their pomp and ceremony. Is there a disconnect there?
1: I don't think it's a disconnect. I think that people are very worried about the future of the country. A Characteristic of the British is their capacity to, to just keep moving along. There is another expression, which I can't use on air, but <laughs> the British have their own expression where they just keep going. Yeah, KBO, as Winston Churchill would call it, you just keep going and Zagrin so and Barrett, they're also locked in their imperial past. In fact, it's interesting, the article actually refers to Britain as being Hab- the Habsburg dynasty, which, you know, the Habsburgs controlled a lot of Europe right. for centuries and then disappeared, or there's pleasure to go around Habsburg's palaces, particularly in Austria, mm. if you're a tourist. But that's the past. What we need and what we do not get yet is a vision of a new Britain. When it comes to post-Brexit Britain, there were two visions being offered. One is that Britain would become the Mexico of Western Europe. In other words, just as you see with Mexico, you have reduced environmental standards, reduced industrial standards, etc. So it becomes a cheap place to do your manufacturing rather than the high cost of, say, doing it in Germany. Sure. And so one of the fears the Europeans had is, and this is why the negotiations to actually physically leave turned out to be so difficult, is they really didn't want to have Britain becoming a New Mexico, so to speak, right off their coastline, getting all the dirty, dangerous manufacturing and costing jobs on the European mainland. The alternative one is Singapore on Thames. So when you look at Singapore, it's a a modern services-based country, banking, insurance, tourism, and so that would be the focus. The problem is that that would certainly work in, in around London, You know, where I'm from, we've all done very well in the south of England, but what do you do with the north? And, in fact, all the way back to Mrs Thatcher's time in power, really what she could have dealt with in the 1970s and 80s, a giant tidal wave sweeping across the North Sea and just wiping out the north of England because it's very difficult to see how that is going to develop. Boris Johnson talked about levelling up, in other words, introducing more industrial development into there. But, the, but that is the era where the Industrial Revolution began around 1750, transformed the world. Just look at what we've got in this studio. It's all part of that Industrial Revolution. Mm. So that part of, of England transformed the world, but it's now redundant, and it's very difficult to see a new role for it. And so that is the difficulty, that on the one hand, Britain could become the Mexico of Europe, getting all the dirty, dangerous, cheap labour, poor environmental standards of manufacturing, or it becomes bright, shiny, Singapore, and attracting the more service-based industries, et cetera, banking, which, of course, Britain used to be the leader in, and insurances and that sort of thing. They are the two contrasting visions, but you really don't get much of a debate amongst the politicians as to what is the future. They're just so scrambling... To deal with individual issues mm-hmm. at the moment as we speak is the issue is um, asylum seekers arriving by boat from the french coast yeah a problem but that really doesn't determine the future of britain Mm-mm. and yet that's where the attention is focused stop the boats yeah rather than saying "Well, what's the future of britain and i think that this is really the the lesson from this article that in the future the british politicians will have to create the vision for themselves rather than blame European bureaucrats. Getting out of the European Union means that you've lost that excuse, which is built into everything, you blame Europe. You can't do that now. No. You're on your own.
0: No more scapegoat. No more scapegoats. (laughs) Well, fascinating chat today, Keith. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Sasha Barber Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolich.